So the concept is, first you need tax liabilities, which puts everyone in debt to the government. And it's coercive. They have to be enforceable, otherwise it's not going to work. And it's a question of, well, what right does the government have to force people to do anything? Well, with the U.S. Constitution, we the people gave the government the right to do this. An important MFT contribution to the history of thought is that unemployment is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, and the tax liabilities by design function to create unemployment. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, and this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Today, I have Warren Mosler joining me. Warren has been with us forever. Without Warren, there is no real progressives. And without Warren's word, there is no MMT. And it's just such a great honor and privilege to have Warren, not only as a friend, but as somebody who freely gives of his time and of his knowledge. And so Warren had recently written a, I guess about six months ago recent, written a COVID-19 response, his concept of what that was. So I thought it'd be great to bring Warren on to talk about that. But one of the other things that I thought was really important to bring Warren on, Warren obviously created what he considers to be Warren Mosler or Mosler Economics, okay, pre-MMT. And Warren took that information and spread it around to a couple early adopters in Randy Ray and Bill Mitchell and Matt Forstater. And it became this thing. It became MMT. And so I think it's really nice to hear, especially for people that haven't really been indoctrinated or haven't had the opportunity to learn the stuff and really hear about it, to really hear what core MMT, according to Warren Mosler, means and is. And I think there's a very valuable conversation. Warren wrote the book, Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy. I suggest that you get that book at some point in time. We have a publication of it on Real Progressive's website. Warren was kind enough to allow us to publish it through there. So with that, Warren, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us here at Macaron Cheese. Good to be here. And every time you introduce me, I've got to go out and get new hats. They don't, they're too small. <laughs> well, it's true, though. Man. My head the... swells up. <laughs> Well, I didn't talk about you being a great automobile designer. I didn't talk about you being yeah. a wonderful tennis player. I didn't talk about you building yeah. boats and stuff like that. So, I mean, I can I got room to grow the head, man. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> so, with the introduction, okay. Yeah. Tell, let's just start out. Tell us what Mosler Economics that has now been called MMT Tell us what that is. Explain to us what that is. Okay, so I wrote something called the white paper, and I sent it around to all you know MMT proponents I knew for comment, and nobody ever answered. <laughs> Still out there. So I wanted to make it kind of a collaborative effort to list what the MMT contributions are to the economics history of thought, to you know, the economics in general, macroeconomics, the general understanding of economics. So I just kept chipping away at it, and nobody's ever really picked it up and published it or spread it around. So I've got it on my website. We got it on our yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Did you get any feedback or anything? Not uh, much. Right? No. <laughs> no. No, we did not. Maybe Except for is, from regular activists who read it. It's like, wow, and they shared it around. So, yes, we did get right, that. Right, right. That is, to me, at this point in time, says what the contributions are to economics. Okay. And so the number one contribution was the sequencing idea where every member of Congress thought they needed to get dollars first through taxing to be able to spend. What they didn't tax, they had to borrow from China and leave the 
that to our grandchildren and President Obama and Hillary Clinton or whoever went to China <laughs> to make sure that they were going to finance our healthcare system. You know, the whole idea was we had to get that happened, right? And so every president we've had has been on this thing that we got to be really careful with bond markets and everything else because we have to be able to get this money or we can't spend it. And what I pointed out oh, too long ago now, 30 years, is that in fact, as everybody in Fed operations knows, you know, every senior civil servant at the Fed, not the political appointees who can't tie their own shoes, but the civil servants who are very, very good people in monetary affairs, they all know that all the money to pay taxes, all the money that can be used to buy bonds, all the U.S. dollars to pay taxes or buy bonds come from the government and its agents. And you say the government is not like some guy up there who's the government that has agents, like the Fed and Congress and the military and everything else. So all the dollars that pay taxes come from the government or its agents. And its agents includes the banking system. That's the first thing people say, oh, the banks can make money. Okay, that they're agents of the government, and we're not going to talk about that now, but they are. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I owned a bank. I know I was an agent of the government. Yes. They made it very clear to me <laughs> if I tried to act in any other manner. <laughs> Slam. Okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there's no discussion on that point. <laughs> so <laughs> they have the right to change management if they don't like what you're doing. Right. And it's under the CAMELS regulations, and they're not shy about pointing that out. <laughs> We don't like the color you painted the building. We can change management. Okay. I'll paint it whatever color you want. Right. Okay. So the money to pay taxes or buy bonds comes from the government or states. In other words, the government has to spend first <laughs> before the U.S. dollars are there that can be used to pay taxes or to buy bonds. So if the sequence is first the government spends, and then technically they're crediting, for the most part, crediting reserve accounts at the Fed, which are like checking accounts at the Fed for all the member banks. So first they spend by putting money in all the member banks, checking accounts at the Fed called reserve accounts. Okay. And those balances that they put in member banks accounts can only go to other member banks. They can transfer them between each other, but they can't like jump off the balance sheet and run overseas or something. There is no such thing. It's just an entry on a spreadsheet. You can only debit one account, credit another. There's no independent existence for these balances. All right, so they spend first. Some of those balances are then used to pay taxes. So they would then debit your account. And whatever's left over can be used to buy government bonds. So they sell government bonds. When those get paid for, they shift the money from these checking accounts at the Fed to government bond accounts, which are just savings accounts, time deposits. Okay, and so the first thing is the sequence that they spend first and then taxes are paid or bonds are purchased. Well, if that's the case, the whole idea of, well, where's the money come from is inapplicable. It's just the Federal Reserve changing the numbers in somebody's bank account at the Fed, another bank's bank account at the Fed. That's where the money comes from. It doesn't come from taxing. It doesn't come from borrowing. It doesn't come from anywhere. And people visualize money as flowing. So it moves from this account and goes into that account and goes somewhere else. And the analogy I like to give for money is a television screen. So if you look at your television screen today, you saw a tennis match between Nadal and Djokovic. Mm -hmm. You saw them running around and you saw the ball going around. But there's nothing moving on your television screen. You get up really close to your screen. By the way, that's the only time I use the word really. I don't use it in monetary discussion. <laughs> <laughs> you get up close enough to your screen, what you see are little dots going on and off. <laughs> there's nothing moving on that screen. And if you look at money, at least in the banking system, what you see is numbers in accounts going up and numbers going down, but you don't see anything moving in between accounts. All right? It's just accounting. It's scorekeeping. One score goes up and another score goes down, but there's nothing actually moving. Okay, so I'm getting off track a little bit. So the first contribution that what is now called MMT made, also economics made to this of consequence here, is that spending has to come first. and it's easy enough to understand. Everybody knows that the movie theater doesn't collect the ticket first and then sell it. The football stadium doesn't go out and collect tickets first and then sell them. They have to sell the ticket first before it can be collected. Likewise, the government has to spend its dollars before they can be collected as taxes or as payments for bonds. Okay, And everyone in the Fed knows it. Now, they use different language. They say, yes, we can't do a reserve drain, which means get payments 
without first doing a prior reserve ad, which means making payments. <laughs> we have to do a reserve ad first. We have to make payments before the money is there, before the dollars are there to be able to pay us because it's just a spreadsheet, right? So that was the first contribution was the sequence. So hold on uh, for a second. So if I'm thinking about this, this means that, yeah. you know, the flows between banks, there's nothing literally flowing. It's computer A marks account up over on the other side, computer B marks accounts down. It's computer A marking up and down accounts on its books. Each bank has its own computer and its own spreadsheet marking accounts up and down on its own books. None of them can change what numbers on anybody else's books. So how do they map the flows between the banks then? How does that work? Okay, well, we're getting a little off track, but I can do that if you want. I well, can go take, on and go through how Target 2 works in the Euro system. <laughs> well, no, let, take, take, just, just, just play with it for right, just so a let's second. Say, Tease it yeah. out. All right, so, okay, so we'll take some time here. And this always happens, by the way. I understand. Just remind me where we started. You got it. Which is the white paper and the contribution. Yes. So what happens is, imagine there's only one bank. And I have an account at the bank and you have an account at the bank. And the bank buys pencils from me or something and puts dollars in my account. And now I can buy something from you and move the dollars from my account to your account. And then you can buy something from me and move the dollars from your account to my account. Or you can buy something from the bank. They'll pay them per service or whatever interest. And then they'll move dollars out of your account. Okay, so that one bank is moving the dollars between our accounts. There's nothing else involved here. Okay, there's only one bank marking accounts up and down on its own books. Like if you're playing cards and you've got everybody's score on a piece of paper, there's one scorekeeper. He adds to one person's score and subtracts from another, and that's it. But there's only one. The score doesn't fly off that piece of paper and go anywhere. It stays on that piece of paper. All right, so now the problem becomes, let's say there's two banks. So now you and I are doing this on this bank back and forth, and then you want to buy something from somebody but he doesn't have an account at this bank. His account is at bank B. They always name these banks A and B, by the way. <laughs> so we're in bank A, and now there's bank B over there, and you want to buy something from somebody in bank B. Well, how do you do that? <laughs> okay, it's not easy. It's not like there isn't any way to do it without something else involved. Something else has to be involved. And the way it works is there is a bank in between. Let's call it the Fed. Okay, it doesn't need to be. It could be a private bank or a private clearinghouse. Let's call it the Fed. And Bank A has an account at the Fed. And Bank B has an account at the Fed. Just like you and I have accounts at Bank A, and just like those other people have accounts at Bank B, Bank A and Bank B each have an account at the Fed. And the Fed can track money from Bank A's account and add money to Bank B's account. But only the Fed can do that. Bank A and Bank B can't make those entries. Nor can the Fed make entries between you and I on Bank A's books or between, or can Bank B can't make, in, you know, makes entries between the people on its books, but it can't make entries at the Fed and it can't make entries on Bank A's books. So we have three banks now, one in the middle called the Fed, and each one is a scorekeeper for accounts on its own books. And that's it. And that's it. Easy enough. Back to contributions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, you didn't ask me what happens if somebody has an overdraft and they're not no, collateralized. No, no, no. no. I didn't want okay, to get okay, into okay. the weeds there. I just wanted to, okay, I just okay. wanted to taste test how that worked out. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. All right. So, yes, it is that simple. Fortunately, otherwise, I've met the people running this thing. If it wasn't, they, they wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> and I used to have a small bank and they used to work for me. And if it wasn't that simple, they wouldn't know how to do it. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> so, I've met with Bernanke. I've met with Janet Yellen. They're all very nice people. There's no conspiracy. They're just plain vanilla academics. And, but this stuff's hard for them. <laughs> if I had to explain this to them, what I just explained to you, I would have had to dumb it way down. <laughs> Their heads would have exploded. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Which is true. So anyway, one of the contributions is the sequencing. And that itself is a contribution to sequencing. But out of that comes something equally as important to economists, to finance, to understanding monetary operations, you know, to running the financial system. And that is the money story comes out of that. 
And MMT has a money story that's different, at least for now, been different from the mainstream money story, which was somehow there was people exchanging things without money and then money became convenient or something like that. They have a whole story about those bartering and then money, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. Okay, but you know, to me, that doesn't matter. What matters is how today's currencies work because that's what we're dealing with, the dollar, the pound, the euro. And so that money story begins with a government that wants to provision itself. All right, so how do you get people out of the private sector into the government? How do you get them you know, into the army? How do you get them into the legal system? How do you get them to be school teachers and public health workers and all these things? Now, you could ask for volunteers, but that doesn't you know, work. That's not a very strong way to do it. That doesn't work. It's not reliable. All right, now, when I start this, you know, I'll get pushback. And people will say to me, well, you know, look, there was no private sector until the government, so you can't start with the government trying to get people from the private sector. And I say, okay, so let's not call it the private sector. Let's just call it a population. <laughs> you know, so I don't want to. So I get into all this, like, semantic stuff about, you know, about a premise that the government wants to provision itself and get, you know, from the resources that are all around it. How about that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I like that actually, but yes, keep going. You yeah, yeah. So okay. So by saying the private sector, I got into trouble with some people who wouldn't let go. You know, and spend a five-hour discussion as to what the definition of the private sector is. So I started saying non-government sector. <laughs> Fair enough. So it's not the government; it's the non-government, and they can't argue with that. So that's where you'll see in my work the government sector versus the non-government sector. Just to avoid that argument. Okay. So the point is, the government wants to hire people. And it wants to buy food for the cafeteria and bullets for the soldiers and that kind of stuff. So how do you do that? Okay, so the way we do it is the first thing we do is impose a tax liability, right? And now you can use income tax for this model that I'm building here, but it's complicated and it's second order and it requires computing incomes and all kinds of stuff or it's a non-starter. So rather than get into that whole argument now, I'd be happy to get into it, but it's diversionary. Let's <laughs> yes. just assume a property tax because that's an easy one <laughs> to yes. understand, you know, the dynamic. And it works and everything else. And I'm not saying that that is how the whole world works only on a property tax. It doesn't, okay? But for purposes of example, think about a property tax. Okay, so the government puts a tax on everybody's house of a certain amount and a tax liability, all right? So, and that's what drives the system. Okay, and then they say, well, you know, you don't need taxes to fund spending. Okay, but you need tax liabilities to create things for sale. Okay, it's, there's a distinction there, but it's, you know, it's a bit semantics, right? Because people use taxes and tax liabilities interchangeably. So unless you're precisely defining words, you know, if somebody says, oh, we don't need taxes to fund spending, I say, well, we need tax liabilities. You don't need actual tax payments. Now, oh, well, you're saying I'm wrong. Like, well, I'm not saying you're wrong. You know, I'm trying to point out how it works. And you can say what's right or wrong. So I'm uncomfortable with when I read that MMT is saying, you know, taxes don't finance spending. What does finance even mean? They don't provide the dollars? Yes, that's correct. But that's not necessarily what finance means. Finance means facilitate in some sense more than it means the actual provision of dollars, right, to a lot of people. And they might be wrong. Maybe technically finance means provide dollars. But, you know, I don't want to be like dead right <laughs> and say, you know, get in a semantic argument. Say, okay, I won semantically because the definition of finance means provide the money and, and they don't provide the money for spending. So in that sense, taxes do not finance government. Fine. Okay, so that's a correct statement. Well, that doesn't mean I'm going to put it out there and stand on it because that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get a concept across here. So the concept is, first, you need tax liabilities, which puts everyone in debt to the government. And it's coercive. They have to be enforceable. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And it's a question of, well, what right does the government have to force people to do anything? Well, that's a nice philosophical question. But with the U.S. Constitution, the people, we the people, gave the government you know, the right to do this to tax us and impose tax liabilities for the collective good. And the states already had it before they even had a constitution. Right? So anyway, 
tax liabilities come first. And what do tax liabilities do? They create sellers of real goods and services. And they're, they're always sellers. I'm not saying they weren't sellers before. But these are sellers who now want the thing they need to pay that tax. They want U.S. dollars if they're U.S. dollar denominated tax liabilities. So now we've got people looking for work that gets paid in U.S. dollars. In Japan, the tax liabilities create people looking to get paid yen. In Europe, in the European countries, they create people looking to get paid euro, right? And so they create this nominal demand for the currency, and they create now people looking for paid work, which is exactly why the government did it, because it wanted people looking for paid work so it could go hire them with these, what I started calling way back, otherwise worthless dollars. You ever hear that term? That's one of the original terms. But the government can now spend its otherwise worthless dollars without the tax liability they're worthless because there's a tax credit. The thing that you use to pay taxes is called the tax credit. Okay, so dollars are tax credits. What's a tax credit worth without a tax? Not worth anything. You have tax liabilities. Now these tax credits are worth a lot because you need them so you don't lose your house or your car or go to jail. Yeah, so yeah, got 30 years of practice. I didn't say it. This way the first time. <laughs> so it's evolving. Okay. And if I'd said it this way the first time, it might not have been effective, right? Things change. Very possible. The whole language changes. Everything changes. We were speaking a different language 30 years ago. Okay. So the government imposes tax liabilities to create people looking for paid work, all by design, so they can now hire them to be soldiers and public health workers and teachers and all the other people the government has to provision food inspectors, you know, whatever we feel, whatever the government is there for to serve public purposes is how it provisions itself with the means to do it. All right. So now, interestingly, or interesting, Steve, is that... <laughs> <laughs> Steve, wait, wait, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, we, I get confused. <laughs> the tax liability causes something that didn't exist before, which is people looking for paid work, which is how we define unemployment. Unemployment. I mean, it's not people looking to volunteer at the American Cancer Society. People looking for paid work and want the money. And they can't find it. And so the tax liability creates people looking for paid work who cannot find it because there aren't any dollars initially, apart from, you know, the tax credits, the dollars, apart from what the government has the ability to pay to credit your account with. And so the purpose of taxation by design is, therefore, as a point of logic, to create unemployment, something that did not exist before, period. There's no other cause of unemployment. Without the yen, there wouldn't be millions of people in Japan looking for work that paid in yen who couldn't find it, right? It doesn't work that way. They wouldn't, they'd be looking for something else if they were looking, but they wouldn't be looking for yen, and we define it as, in Japan, as people looking for work paid in yen. In the U.S., it's people looking for work paid in dollars. If there wasn't a tax liability denominated in dollars, the government hadn't done that, there wouldn't be any unemployment as we defined it. So an important MMT contribution to the history of thought is that unemployment is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, and the tax liabilities by design function to create unemployment. And so that is the source of unemployment. And when I talked to Marxian economists, guys like Ricardo Belfiore, you know, over in Italy, he's a really sharp guy. Sound like Trump now. <laughs> Really good guy. <laughs> Just make it great again, right? Just make it great. It's great, again. great, great economist, great Marxian. Beautiful. He man. is actually. He, yeah, beautiful guy. He is actually, but I'm. You know, but, You're just but, testing but out guy. your Trump. Yeah, it does sound suspect now. It didn't sound suspect before Trump when I said that. Now with Trump, it's suspect. Yes. It's, it's really altered our ability to live. Yes. <laughs> So Carl, he says, yeah, that Marx never understood that as the cause of unemployment. He wrote awful lot about it in the class struggle of unemployment, but it was never understood that the cause of unemployment was coercive taxation. He gave us credit for that contribution to the history of thought. I did a little paper out there, a lecture for the class. He said, show me what you think of the contributions, and he gave full credit for that being a contribution. And he's you know, in his 70s, I think, and a good historian. He's seen it all and been to all the conferences and a recognized leader in the field. So anyway, so okay, so I'll take it. Okay, so we get credit for that, for pointing out that the cause of unemployment is taxation. Nobody else says that, right? Right, no one. Whenever you see it written down somewhere, I say it, it there's a lot of pushback. Eyebrows go up for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah, but it's not something anybody's like leading with. <laughs> no. All right. Okay. So the money story starts with a tax liability, creates unemployment, and the government hires them, right? Well, let's say the tax liability creates five million or ten million unemployed. I mean, because we have an institutional structure, we've got ten million unemployed, so they were created by the tax liability. Let's say, and then the government decides to hire three million to provision itself. So it's left seven million people unemployed. Like, why would it do that? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No. It only wants to hire three million. Why didn't it put a tax structure out there that created three million unemployed? You know, this is not a Democratic or Republican thing, or it's not right wing or left wing. You know, nobody would do that. I guess if they knew that it worked this way, they might create a couple, a few million to keep the unemployment numbers down. But certainly when the unemployment numbers were what they are today, which is higher than even they want for any kind of class struggle or anything, they would have pointed out that you feel like you got a problem here. You know, our tax structure is generating 20 million unemployed and we're only hiring 3 million of them. What are we going to do here, guys? Uh, so what would you do? So let's look at what other people have done who have done the same thing. So when the British went into Africa to grow coffee, they put a tax on everybody's house, uh, called it a hut tax. Notice how nicely history ties into my story. Yes, I, the, I do. <laughs> I have the hindsight of knowing I was going to tell the story, so I made it fit. The they history. made the history work for your story, right? Exactly. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. And the people in Africa, and I used to say Ghana, but it turned out Ghana didn't grow coffee. They did other things. And Matt Forstadter actually had a professor there who was from there and actually saw this happen where they put a tax on to get people to work for the British government. And he remembered when his first coins came out as a child. So anyway, so they wanted to grow coffee in a plantation. Nobody in Africa wanted to go to a British plantation to grow coffee. They put a tax on all their huts, called it a hut tax. And if you didn't pay, they had the military there, they'd burn it down. If you don't want your house burned down, you show up at the plantation for work, earn enough money to pay the tax. And they didn't have to work full time. Everybody didn't have to work full time to pay the tax. It was enough to get what they thought were the amount of people they wanted to come grow coffee. So they put this tax on people show up to work. And notice the sequence, tax liability, right? Yep. Something absolutely. nobody has, creates unemployment, people looking for paid work. They show yep. up at the coffee plantation. They give them a job. They hire the unemployed, they're tax created. They pay them, they go home, and they pay their taxes. Okay, and then that's the sequence. The taxes is the last piece of that monetary chain. After the tax was paid, it starts over again, right? So that's our money story, that sequence. Now, what would happen if too many people showed up for work? You know, British didn't want that many people showing up because, you know, they all wanted to earn more than the tax because they wanted to save some and send them, keep them as souvenirs or whatever they were going to do with it or save it for a rainy day or put them in an IRA or something. Merchants wanted to be able to make change for people, everything else. A lot of people didn't want to go to work for the Crow Coffee, so they go out and hunt or gather whatever they were doing, build houses and other people would work more than they needed and buy things from them. And you had this something about, you know, satisfying wants. What do the economists call that thing? Where, Needs, um, desires, yeah, demands. Yeah, they, <laughs> the market figures it out. And some people, you know, you get a division of labor where some people are working the plantations, earning a lot more than they need for their hut tax, but enough to buy things from other people who need to pay the tax. And the whole economy gets monetized. But a lot of these people who probably all of them are going to want to earn more than they actually need to pay the tax, so they have some extras if they get sick or anything else. Which means the British would always spend more than they collected. They might pay the people 10000 and 9000 we used to pay taxes, and the other 1000 are in the street, right? Money in the street, the money supply. It was in cash registers, it was in people's pockets, it was under mattresses. You know, parents took them home as souvenirs or whatever. And you can think of New York City, they always sell more subway tokens than they collect. People have them in their pockets. People take them home for souvenirs. There's a desire to collect them, to net save. I call it a savings desire. All right, now, so the British put a tax on. They figured a certain number of people would show up for work. They pay them all. The British spent more than they collected. They ran a deficit. That was the savings in the economy. But there were more people showing up than they wanted. So what did they do? No, they'd lower the tax, right? Or they'd hire them to do something else. They wouldn't just let them be unemployed and go burn their house down. <laughs> right, just, right, yeah. That's, that's what the European Union does, right? <laughs> that's just stupid. <laughs> that's what the United States government does. You put a tax on which creates unemployed, 
you know, you only provide, you know, circumstances and institutional structures that employs a certain number of them. And the rest are left to you know, wither and die. It's like, what? I give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's, you know, innocent fraud and all that. I say it's a misunderstanding. <laughs> You're very generous there, Warren. <laughs> okay. And nobody who ever did this, knowing what they were doing, ever did what we all do today. That's true. You know, the British ones just go say, all right, the tax is 10000 We're only going to give you work for $9,000. we are going to go out and burn houses down. And the point wasn't to burn the house down. The point was to grow coffee. To coerce you to grow coffee. The, yeah, the point of the government provisioning is to get soldiers, to get public health workers, to get you know, legal system staff, to, you know, to provision the government with all these things, not to have an extra 10 million people that it's just going to let die in the street. It's not like what it's about to create this huge social problem and everything else. That's not the purpose of the exercise. So I can only conclude from that, and I know I'm being way too generous, that it's a huge misunderstanding. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know which is more damning, that they're smart enough to do it by design or they're stupid enough to do it and not know what they were doing. But it's neither one is a flattering situation. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what uh, Galbraith meant by innocent fraud. You know, it's damning, not damning with faint praise, but something, you know, along those lines. Right. Okay, so that's the money story. And the money story teaches us everything we need to know about how the currency works, pretty much. And we can learn more operational details, but you really don't learn anything new conceptually that's not in this money story. And so you can see what the public debt is. It's dollars spent by the government that haven't yet been used to pay taxes. It credits our accounts with $5 trillion when it spends this year, $6 trillion, and only $4 trillion gets paid in taxes. So the deficit's $2 trillion. It sits there in reserve accounts. They sell securities. They get shifted from reserve accounts to securities accounts. It's still the money. But it's the public debt. It's the dollars spent that haven't been used to pay taxes. They sit in savings accounts, securities accounts at the Federal Reserve, earning interest. And that is the money. You say, how much money is in Bank America or Citibank? It's the dollars in checking accounts plus dollars in savings accounts. That is the money. If you count the money at the Federal Reserve Bank, it's dollars in reserves accounts which are like checking accounts, it's dollars and securities accounts, which are like savings accounts with fancy names. That is the money. So the public debt is the money. Well, how do you pay it back? How do you pay the money back? What kind of a stupid question is that? That's not an applicable question. Exactly. You could yeah, say, what, what you happened? it all? Yeah, so like the British would spend 10,000 crown, whatever, they made up some script paying everybody, and only 9,000 gets paid in taxes, the rest is saved in people's pockets and cash registers. And somebody says, well, to the British, you're running a deficit, you're spending 10,000, you only collected 9,000. They go, yeah. They say, well, how are you going to pay it back? And they go like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, what, how is that an applicable question? What do you mean, how are you going to pay it back? It doesn't have applicability to that question. There's nothing to pay back. It already is the money. It's an outstanding tax credit. It can be used to pay taxes. If the British offered accounts that earned interest, like our securities, and people took their crown and gave them to the British to hold in bank accounts called treasury securities that paid some interest. And they say, well, how are you going to pay that back? Like your tax credits, what do you mean? When the accounts mature, they can use those tax credits to pay taxes. You don't ever like pay anything back. We can shift it from you know a savings account to a checking account, but a scorekeeper doesn't like just take score off the books and it disappears unless somebody makes a payment back to the government. So yeah, here's tax credits. They can be used to pay taxes, and until they're used to pay taxes, they remain outstanding. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. Tell 
the yeah. concept of the tax now should be clear to yeah. everyone. It is the liability yeah. that drives the currency. It's the liability right, that right. allows the government to provision itself in and of yeah. itself, right? The tax itself, though, yeah. doesn't do anything. It dies. It's like a score on the board, just like you were talking about looking at the television set, nothing moving there. The tax itself, it's like, where does a deleted digital yeah. stroke go? It goes nowhere. Let's follow the ticket at the football game. Yes, let's. You know, I buy a $1,000 ticket from the game, you know, from the stadium, right? Maybe I sell it to you for 5000 right? Because you really want to go. It's a big game. And you sell it to the next guy for 10000 He goes to the game and gives it to the guy at the gate. What does that guy do with it? He tears it up. Why would he tear up a $10,000 ticket? <laughs> That's pretty stupid, right? Well, everybody knows why he tears it up. Nobody asks that question because it's used up. It's the end of the chain. Goes from the stadium to the person and then back to the stadium. It's returned to the stadium, right? And they throw it away. And then for the next game, they use a new ticket, right? Okay, same thing with the movie theater. Same thing with the U.S. dollar. Let's say they were using cash. I mean, I used to pay the taxes on my house. I go down to the Fed. I give them my old $20 bills. You know, maybe I was a waiter and I was getting tips and the money's a little bit ratty, right? And I pay my taxes with it. And they say, thank you very much for supporting the war in Afghanistan and financing the president's golf <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and then as soon as they leave, what do they do with those old $20 bills? They ship them out to some company that puts them in a shredder and destroys them. And you can buy this shredded money in little bags in Washington. So it's the same path that the movie theater ticket takes. The same path any coupon takes. You know, they spend it, they give it to me. I return it to them as a tax payment, okay? And they shred it. They throw it away. Let's say I bought a million dollars worth of treasury bonds from them. Okay, so they spend the money. I don't pay anybody with it. I save it all. I've got a million dollars in tips. I had a good night here at one of the St. Croix restaurants. They're pretty successful. <laughs> and I go buy a million dollars worth of treasury bonds to the bank. Goes to the Fed with it. It turns it to the Fed. I get my treasury bonds. They pay me 2% interest, 1% interest, whatever. They used to pay five, six, they used to pay 20. And what does the treasury do with the money as soon as they get it? They send it off to the shredder. Okay, who would take your money, borrow your money from you, pay interest on it, promise to pay it back, and then throw it away? <laughs> What's the point of it? Nobody does that, right? No. They don't need <laughs> your money for anything in particular. It should be pretty obvious. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so, but that's the sequence. And when it was, explicit like it was in Africa or you know, Pompeii. I've been looking into that more because I went there as a tourist, Elizabeth and I. We were on one of those little public tours or about 30 or 40 of us. The guide showed us these old coins. Turns out I looked them up. They were made of copper or something, cheap metal. He said it was a very nice place to live, Pompeii. They had great public services, but taxes were high. They would collect these coins for taxes and then they'd pay the police for public safety and the sanitation. But people wanted to live there because you know it's a nice place to live. So I said to him, you know, I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. I said, you know, actually, they would pay the people first, and then they would collect the coins. And he goes, no, 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 no. They collect the tax, and then you pay the people. I said, well, where did the coins come from? He said, well, the government made them. <laughs> so I said, well, how did anybody get a coin to pay the tax? He says, well, they have to spend them first and then collect them. So how else could they do it? He goes, he grabs his head. He goes, no, 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 no. And he walks away and he wouldn't talk to me again. <laughs> right. oh I, I guarantee you, everybody in Pompeii 2,000 years ago knew <laughs> that they would put a tax on your house. People would show up for work. They'd earn these coins, you know, more than they needed. So they could buy things from other people who needed the coins. The taxes would get paid and they'd be returned to the government. Now, you ever think of why they call it your tax return? Because <laughs> you're returning the government's coins. The word revenue comes from the French or Latin word meaning to return, revert, revenue, return. Okay, have you ever heard render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? Like, oh, yes. Pay your taxes. You're returning the coin to the government. Everybody knew that. That was not like some revelation. The book of Revelations didn't have that in it. <laughs> Everybody already knew that. Okay, so this knowledge has been lost. And it's been deadly. I mean, it's the most expensive loss in the history of the world. You think of all the losses of real output from unemployment in the last year, it's probably more than all the losses of all the, all the real losses 
you know, you can't measure human lives, but all the real losses in terms of resources and everything else of all the wars, you know, in the history of the world combined, right? And it's all because we don't understand the sequencing, the taxes, create unemployment, you know, because it's simple stuff that everybody in the planet understood until not too long ago. I mean, Mitchell Innes wrote about it in 1900. He was a lawyer. He wasn't even an economist. <laughs> I mean, everybody had to have known this. And now when you mention it, you know, you're some kind of heterodox economist that people are pushing back at. <laughs> you know, I got published in a mainstream journal two years ago with Damiano Filippo, what's uh, effectively the job guarantee. It was called Maximizing Price Stability in a Market Economy. And it was a proposal for the European Central Bank, oh, in a monetary economy, maximizing price stability in a monetary for the European Central Bank and how to meet their inflation targets using you know, a transition job, a job guarantee, rather than unemployment in the European Union. And it's published in a peer-reviewed mainstream journal, the number two journal in the world, Journal of Policy Models. And, oh, this is still heterodox. Like, no, it isn't. <laughs> this couldn't be any more mainstream, except that the mainstream economists individually reject it. I'm going to get to the interest rate part and remind me about that. Okay, so we have the money story, which is, not necessarily an MMT contribution, but it's the MMT narrative for what money in the currency is nowadays. And I'd say it probably is a contribution in that sense because no one else is using it today. Not that no one ever understood it, but it's part of the narrative. Right. Okay, so we've got the sequence and the money story. Now, the next big thing that I think I have, and tell me if any other of the MMT proponents are out front with this at all, is that the Fed has the interest rate thing backwards. They think lowering rates is easing and raising rates is tightening. And you'll see heterodox economists, MMT economists, maybe criticizing the Fed because they didn't lower rates aggressively enough when there was unemployment because, you know, they're too worried about price stability than they are about unemployment, right? Not all of them, but, you know, you'll see them doing that. And it's because they're not paying attention here. When the Fed's lowering rates, they're creating more unemployment, they're reducing aggregate demand, they're reducing inflation. They've got it backwards. And so, fortunately, you know, when they tried to raise rates too soon, they were actually helping the economy by raising rates. But, you know, they're helping it in a way that's my absolute last choice of how I would ever help an economy. And that's, you know, paying more interest to people because interest only goes to people who already have money. So, when they raise rates, people who already have money are getting an increase. So, raising rates, a positive interest rate policy is what I call basic income for people who already have money. Now, there are a lot of people who think basic income is a good idea, but usually not only for people who already have money and in proportion to how much money they have. Mm -hmm. But that's what raising interest rates does. So yes, it helps the economy. It increases deficit spending. The government's a huge net payer of interest. Raising rates just spews out more interest payments. You know, what some people might call printed money, right? But deficit spending to spending beyond you know, what will come back as taxes, adding to the net money supply by making more interest payments to people who already have money in proportion to how much money they have. To me, that's like absurdly regressive policy. But yeah. the Fed's got it backwards and everybody else has it backwards. And they think that when they raise rates, they're tightening and throwing people out of work. Now, back in the 1970s, probably early 1970s and mid, when they raised rates, they did throw people out of work because savings and loans were capped at how much interest they could pay depositors at like 5% or something like that, maybe 5.5%. So when they raised rates to 7 or 8% to, quote, fight inflation, all the savings and loans lost all their deposits, couldn't make any mortgages, and it slowed down the economy. Okay, that was a unique institutional structure that linked higher rates to a slowing economy. You know, it's been long gone. That cap was removed not long after that, maybe in the late mid 70s. And so the interest rates function, you know, the way I'm saying they function. But the idea that high rates are deflationary and bad for the economy certainly would only be applicable with some kind of institutional like structure like that in place, which is long gone. And it's also applicable to maybe fixed exchange rates or gold standard, which is long gone. But it's entirely unapplicable to today's floating exchange rates. It's just backwards. Okay, so given that, okay, Paul Krugman, 
Professor Krugman made an interesting statement in response to that discussion he was having with Stephanie Kelton on Bloomberg. I don't know if you remember that, where he said, look, the problem with running deficits to sustain full employment, which I've said from the beginning, you can always sustain full employment by running deficits, you know, and so there's no reason not to do that. He said, oh, there is a reason. Because if the deficit gets large enough and then you start getting some inflation and you want to raise rates to slow down that inflation, you can't do it. It doesn't work. It's backwards because if the deficit is large enough and you raise rates, it'll cause more inflation from all the interest the government has to pay. And so the problem with using a deficit to sustain full employment is that you want to raise rates to fight inflation. You can't do it because it will cause more inflation. So he's actually making my point, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's what I said to him. I said, yeah, exactly my point. And that's why you don't raise rates to fight inflation because it causes more inflation. <laughs> it's not only if the deficit goes high enough, it already is high enough. Already 25 trillion or whatever it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, you add 1% to the interest rate. That's 1% of GDP extra that you're paying out. It's huge. Yet you raise rates to 5% to fight inflation. You just increase deficit spending on interest, which is all demand side and no supply side, and it's all going up or income people. So it's all skewing the whole issue of income distribution. And so that policy of raising rates to fight inflation has never been a viable option. It's always been based on an error, which you just pointed out. <laughs> he said, well, how would you draw that on an ISLM curve? It's like, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> oh boy, they're you know, models. He, you know, he, <laughs> yeah, no, I can do that. So you're saying this curve is flat and there is no IS and there is no you know, the interest rate is not a function of that. So it's like, yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. You know, well, draw it out for me and I'll take a look at it. Like, why is the burden of proof on me? I just gave you something intuitively obvious. He's Rest not really own, an economist. It's, your own, it's in your own model. Yeah, it's in his own model. He's the one who said it to me. It's like, you said it first. I don't have to prove it. <laughs> you already said it. That's enough. <laughs> I don't have to prove something. You, why do you not accept something that you said first unless I can prove it? <laughs> That's insane. Yes. He yeah. probably, so I he, don't think he did it. He probably had a friend do it for him and then took credit for it is what it ended up being. <laughs> yeah. That's New Keynesian understanding. Yes. And that's their argument against full employment. Okay. So, but again, that's reinforcing the idea that the interest rate thing is backwards. And there's yet another one that I came up with. I'm not sure. This one I came up with in like 1995 or six. I don't know. It's a long time ago. Maybe before that, because I remember having a meeting at a Bank of England pointing this out to a guy at the Bank of Japan, one of their officials, when they were going into the zero rate policy and QE. And I remember the guy from the Bank of England, his name was Crocker, was standing next to me. And I talking to the official from the Bank of Japan. I said they were just doing quantitative easing and a lot of it back then. And I said, like, I don't see like how it does anything. I said, here you are buying JGBs, government bonds and paying the banks in yen with the idea that now they'll somehow going to be some channel between that and increased lending. I said, it's not like there's a line of people waiting to borrow yen if only the banks you know, had lending capacity. They already have lending capacity, loans, great deposits, and all that. You know, whether there's reserves or not is not a factor in lending. You know, they're not constrained by reserves. And Crocker, he was an older guy, because I was younger at the time. He's probably younger than I am now. He looks at the guy from the bank of Japan. He goes, yeah, what do you got to say to that? <laughs> and he says, well, you know, that's our policy. Or, and our models say that it's going to work or something. But anyway, so I know that it, back in the 90s, I was pointing this stuff out because I didn't have any reason to document it. Right. Nobody was asking me about it. So we had this idea that the whole policy is backwards. And I've been saying it for a while long time. The paper on zero is the natural rate of interest, I think was written in 1997. I wrote that with Matt Forstead. That's a long time, right? None of the MMT proponents are like going after it that you can see. I think that's a big risk right now that we get this deficit spending, which is great, you know, that we've had recently. It's, you could say MMT has saved the world, whether it knows it or not. There's no way they would have done 3 trillion and now talking another 2 trillion and there hasn't been a single mention of the tax, right? Right. That's a pretty massive shift, and they can say what they want, but I don't think they would have done that if it wasn't for our influence in the last you know, couple of years, particularly Stephanie with her book coming out and being on the Senate Budget Committee, getting that attention with academics that never would have happened before. I think she has to 
is by and large the most influential economist right now in the world. I would agree uh, with and that. that. And, you know, I'm not arguing she's the smartest or the best, even though she probably is, but you could say she's not. You could say she's the least knowledgeable and the least capable, but she's the most influential. She's extremely smart and yes. extremely capable. You know, I wouldn't hire any of the others to make coffee in my office, but I'm saying <laughs> worst case, even if she like wasn't anything, you cannot take away from her, no matter how much you want to criticize what she's saying, right. how much you might want to criticize her personal skills, which I think are impeccable. She's so deep into things and so rigorous about everything. I mean, she did that whole model about treasury spending and taxing and came up with the idea that they spend first. Nobody would ever have done that. That was a very difficult exercise. She was only like a year or two out of being a grad student. So no, I can't say enough about her skills. But I'm saying even a critic who would criticize her as being some left-wing radical member of the squad, you know, whatever you want to say. Some cannot, of us would consider that to be a compliment. <laughs> right. Cannot, cannot take away the fact that she's the most influential. I think that's a fact. Yeah. They don't give an award to the hundred smartest economists or the ones who can do math the best or anything like that. Right. You know, when they, when they mention the top 100 economists, it's based on influence. And she is, you know, on a scale one to 10, you know, she's a 10, this number two guy is about a three right now. What other economist is influential right now? Like darn any. No. They've all well, lost their influence. Krugman's lost his influence. He was influential, and you certainly wouldn't have said he was capable, but he was influential. He was the most influential. But now he's not influential at all. They just kind of read him anecdotally. Okay. Right. Can you well, name another economist? I guess that's the question, right? I mean, you see the Larry like, like Summers. Robert, okay. Larry Summers, do you think he's influential? Well, he's influential time? with people that are unfortunately in Washington, not necessarily influential with anyone else. Like the people like that are... Anymore? Who's advising Biden? Is that Jared Bernstein? He or? Yeah, he, they were, but they're not like... Their advice is all falling from Stephanie now. What That's, are they advising him? He's got to raise taxes to pay for like they would have two years ago? So Stephanie's got herself in the Biden campaign now. Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, she, no, no. Uh, her, <laughs> it, she's made an intellectual contribution. Oh, she's influencing those economists. Okay. Those economists are all 100% influenced now by her book. Excellent. Okay, they okay. would not have been saying, right now they'd be advising Biden, look, we need an emergency tax on the rich. We have to, we need a huge corporate tax or else the country's <laughs> going to go broke. You know, Obama had, you know, a thousand page thing on his desk, how if he, you know, did the two trillion stimulus instead of the one trillion, interest rates were going to go through the roof, the dollar was going to go down and the world was going to collapse. Biden doesn't have that book on his desk because of Stephanie Kelton. Amen. You know, and, and Stephanie Kelton being, you know, the last link in the chain that got to them. You know, I'm not saying that if it was only Stephanie Kelton and not Bill Mitchell and Randy and everybody else, because then there wouldn't have been Stephanie. But I'm just saying at the moment, that's the immediate link. She is the immediate link to their thinking in the United States. And certainly in European Union, in Australia, maybe it's more Bill Mitchell. And her book has been, you know, way outsold anything Bill did or anything. And you know, maybe for the wrong reasons and all that. You know, she's better looking or whatever. But you know, <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. for the politically incorrect reasons. Oh, but, Lord. You know, but I'm just saying, the fact is that Stephanie, with her book, the way it came out, the way they timed it, the publishers and everything else, the book saved the world, okay? And that cannot be taken away by any of the critics. No, they that is absolutely they want. true. They cannot take that part away, that it is the pivotal factor for what saves the world. And so that's not nothing, right? It's only saved the world now, but the world's in danger. Look, the nuclear weapons, you could argue, ended World War II, but right. they didn't save the world. <laughs> okay, no. they created the next crisis that we're still not even beginning to emerge from. Okay, there's 50, 25, 30,000 nuclear weapons in the world aimed all over the place that take everybody out in 30 minutes if they're ever fired. We haven't done much with that. Okay, so we've got an understanding now that the government can't be insolvent, that they can make payments, that we can spend the money. The money doesn't come from taxing. We can go ahead and spend it. We're not ready for the consequences any more than we're ready for the consequences of nuclear. Okay, we know we had to use it to end the war. We thought we did. Personally, I'm not sure, but I'm not going to get in that argument. But let's say we knew we had to use it to end the war, so we did it. But now we're open to all the consequences, right? And 
Now we're open to all the consequences, and they've got the interest rate thing backwards. So if inflation numbers, CPI, or whatever, however they want to measure inflation, starts to pick up, or housing prices, or who knows what, you know, and they decide, look, we need to raise rates to go after this, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be that Krupen nightmare of, you know, massive debt, interest rates causing more inflation, and, you know, the carpenter with his piece of wood, no matter how much I cut off, it's still too short, right? So <laughs> they keep raising rates and the inflation keeps getting worse. We get in one of those situations. To me, the next critical piece of knowledge to keep this thing from backfiring on us is to understand they got the interest rate thing backwards. And I'm not seeing the kind of support that I think we need to get that understanding into mainstream thinking. Okay, it's not coming from Bill. It's not coming from Stephanie. They're not disagreeing or anything, but they're not leading with it and they're not, you know, an odd effort to get this out there. Yeah, you hear a lot of these guys talking about how, oh, it's a good time to finance deficits because interest rates are low. And I'm like, what right, are you talking right, about? Right. That's ridiculous. Right, but you don't see MMT proponents leading with that. They're still leading with things like, look, the government can't go insolvent. You know, they're spending first. It's all correct, but it's kind of fighting last year's battle. And I'm not saying we've absolutely won that battle, but the next battle is the threat. I don't think the solvency battle is the threat anymore. And there are plenty of people on that bandwagon now, plenty of MMT proponents working on the solvency. Every real progressives type organization is all over the solvency. Government prints the money. They can always make payments. Yes. You know, what about inflation? Yeah, inflation. But in the meantime, we can pay for COVID. We can do this as long as we don't do too much to cause inflation. We're okay. They've got that. All the, you know, armchair economists got that one. All the millions and millions of MMTers, the armchair MMTers who are, very good, and we owe the world to. But this whole thing has been a grassroots movement. People like yourself, people like these armchair MMTs, the bloggers, the Twitters, nobody's ever seen this. This isn't something that came down from some University of Chicago, like Rational right. Expectations or anything, you know, or Friedman or something from anybody with any credentials. This came from people with literally zero credentials. Okay. Stephanie, Randy, Bill, they have no Ivy League, you know, academic credentials, period. They're considered heterodox out of the mainstream, never published once in any, you know, what would be considered a real academic journal. Okay, published in their own little heterodox journals that publish each other, you know, these people who couldn't do math, that's what they call them, which is right. a good <laughs> mathematician, but that's heterodox people who weren't smart enough to do math, so they became heterodox. Ideas that don't make sense, but look, you know, it's not, you know, we're politically correct. We'll let them do whatever they want. You know, that it all came from that. And you've seen plenty of other ideas that have gestated there that didn't make it because they were nuts, right? <laughs> Positive money and all that stuff. Exactly. Yes. You, you, know, you know, okay. But this thing has survived the test of time. It came out of purely from the bottom up, nowhere else. I got a BA in economics from UConn. I don't have any credentials for anything. I was a finance guy on Wall Street. The academics won't even talk to me. Okay, so <laughs> it really came from nothing. And it's just its own pure force of logic and the fact that it's true. You know, it's the emperor has no clothes type of thing. So the next contribution from MMT, there's one more aspect to this, and I won't go into it in too much detail, but if you ask the Fed, what is the rate of inflation? They'll say, well, what do you mean? You'll say, well, just the rate of inflation. They'll say, well, we can tell you last month it was 0.3%. The consumer price index went up or the trim weighted average went up 0.2 or the something, you know, and they'll give you all these measurements of past price indexes that they gather. They can tell you how they change. That doesn't mean that right now that that's the rate of inflation. That's what it was last month. They say, oh, would you like our forecast of what it'll be next month? Oh, well, yeah, but that isn't the rate of inflation. That's your forecast of it. Like, what is the rate of inflation? Well, how is it defined academically? Academically, inflation is the continuous change in the price level that's happening right now that's faced by people in the real economy. What's the continuous change in the price level they're facing right now? They're dealing with that's you know affecting their business, their purchases, their sales. And that is what the markets call forward pricing. If you're a gold miner and you're mining gold, you want to know what the price is for next year. You're a gold jeweler, you want to know what price, and somebody wants you to do a project, well, how much is gold going to cost me, you know, if I buy it for delivery next year or something like that. And so those are called forward prices. And those forward prices are a direct 
function of the interest rate set by the Fed, the policy rate, the risk-free rate. So when you have a zero interest rate environment in Japan for 10 years like we do now, if gold is $2,000 today and you want to buy it for delivery 10 years from now, it's still $2,000. Because whoever buys, if somebody sells it at a profit and he has to hold it for 10 years, he doesn't care. There's no interest charge, right? But if the rate is 10% a year, the interest rate, they raise their rates. Now the price of gold, if you want to buy it and not take delivery for 10 years, is going to go up at a, you're going to have to compound it over 10 years. It'll be like $8,000 or something, $10,000. Because whoever's holding your gold has to, you know, you can hold your money and earn the interest, or he has to borrow the money and pay the interest. You know, the interest rate determines the forward price. You know, it's a core component of forward pricing. The interest rate is a core component of forward pricing. And so you go through the analytics, you go through the idea of relative value and pricing, and you can say that the term structure of prices based by today's merchants, agents, people buying and selling things for delivery tomorrow, the next day, next year, 10 years from now, okay, that rate of inflation is the interest rate. The interest rate set by the Fed is the rate of inflation. It doesn't mean gold will be higher in 10 years. It means that if you want to buy it now, you got to pay that much more for 10 years delivery. It might be lower, but that's what you got to pay right now. And that's just a fact. That's a calculation. That's not a theory or anything. It's just forward pricing. And so that is the academic definition of inflation. The term structure of prices, which is a function of the interest rate, based by today's market participants. And so the irony is that the Fed, if you ask, hasn't even considered that. So the actual rate of inflation, academically determined, and that's what they're charged to take care of, the rate of inflation, is something they haven't even considered. Now, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on research into inflation in the economy. Mm -hmm. They don't have a single PhD directed at looking at forward prices and how that affects the economy. And of all the things they do, the rate of interest, they look at how that affects their own stuff, the economy and all these other things in their models. They don't recognize or understand or pay attention to the idea that the interest rate they're setting is directly changing the term structure of prices facing the economy, that they are setting the inflation rate to the economy when they set interest rates. If they have a policy rate of 1% and the 10 years are 1%, then the 10-year rate of inflation faced by the economy is 1% right now. They don't consider that. And if they raise rates to 2%, then that doubles. Now the economy is dealing with a 2% inflation rate. You go to buy a house, somebody has to build a house, it's going to take a year. The rate of interest is a big factor. It's not something they look at. So the actual true semantic, the definition of inflation, whatever you want to call it, academic, they don't even look at it. Okay, They don't know how that affects the economy. It doesn't. Maybe it makes no difference and they shouldn't be looking at it. But they need to know that, I think, <laughs> I would think. You'd think I, you know, I've never some, heard them talk about some curiosity. This. Yeah, you would think it'd be no central bank in the history of the world has talked about this. You'd think it'd at least be a curiosity to see this rate of inflation, the academic rate as defined by all the universities that they are setting with their policy rate, how that influences the economy. You know, try that. You know, like put that in your pipe and smoke it. Type of thing. <laughs> they don't even like give it a passing thought. That's a contribution I've sort of made to this interest rate discussion. But it also points out that the higher rate of interest from the Fed is a higher rate of inflation as academically defined directly. It's not like it doesn't influence it. It is the rate. Okay, so back to the argument that higher interest rates are higher inflation. Rates of inflation is direct through forward pricing, and it's influential through the aggregate demand channels and the forward pricing channels through the cost channels for businesses. So we've got three ways, you know, and we've got all the data, right? Because Japan's had zero rates for 30 years, and you haven't seen that cause inflation. Mm -mm, no. And I can remember Basil Moore was an economist who wrote horizontalist and verticalist. He used to ask me, you know, 15 years ago, he says, I can't understand it. He says, why don't we have hyperinflation in Japan? They've had zero rates now for 10 years. And I've been telling her for 10 years that the zero rates are deflationary. He goes, yeah, but, you know, why don't people just borrow like crazy and do that? You know, Basil, well, for one thing, they don't. You've got all the data, okay? So maybe the stuff I've been telling you, the theory behind that data, maybe it's right. <laughs> you couldn't accept it. You would think people would just go out and borrow like crazy. And I kept telling them, look, the interest income on the other side is just as powerful. And it was fun to watch him try and reconcile what he thought to be true with both theory and, at that point, 10 years of evidence. We got what was happening.
And now we've got 30 years of heaven, 10 years from Europe, negative rates and no inflation. Isn't that supposed to be hyperinflation? All their models, all their little curves forecast <laughs> inflation from those policies that didn't happen. Absolutely. Same with the Fed. The Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and full employment. They screw up yeah. full employment with NARO. And on the flip side, they screw up price no, but stability. But that's their measurement. But what, what does NARO mean? It means they raise rates too soon, right? Right. Yes. But that promotes full employment. So actually, the NARO's saved them from being worse. Now, they've done it by basic income for people who already have money on a pro rata basis, which is absurd. Right. We regress them. Okay. But see, that's what I'm talking about when, you know, MMT proponents talk about the Fed and its mandates and what it's done and how the Nehru has caused unemployment to be higher. But once you factor in, they've got their policy tools backwards. It's thank goodness. <laughs> or it would have been worse. So it's an accident. <laughs> Accidental. Oh, yeah, yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. So this is an area that we really do need to really dive into. I don't want the Fed to get inflation up by raising rates. Right. I'd rather see progressive spending on something that we desperately need right now, or at least a progressive change in the tax structure to lower taxes progressively. That would be my first choice, way more than paying more interest to people who already have money if I wanted to get the economy going. I'd rather have a payroll tax cut you know, than an interest rate increase, right? What would you rather have, an interest rate increase or a Green New Deal? Uh, <laughs> You're going to help I, the economy. Those are your two choices. Yeah, yeah I'm going to go with the Green right. New Deal. You know, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's putting it that way. They're saying if you have a Green New Deal, the Fed's going to have to raise rates. No, <laughs> that's backwards. Right. That just uses up fiscal space. It doesn't create it. Can you describe what makes up fiscal space, please? Yeah, rising unemployment is the evidence of fiscal space. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and on excess capacity, things for sale in dollars. Don't forget the tax creates things for sale. So if you just have a small tax, you're only going to get a few things for sale. And that's all the government can buy. Can't buy any more than is offered for sale. And, you know, Randy and Stephanie will make that clear in their discussions that by excess capacity, they mean offered for sale. But I don't think they lead enough with that when you're talking to you know general audience. They'll say, well, as long as we have excess capacity, we can do this or that. It's critically important to say as long as there are things for sale with a dollar price tag on them, then the government can buy them. But without tax liabilities, there will not be things for sale with dollars. It just won't work. You'll just have hyperinflation. But, you know, that needs to be, like, led with more, I think. You know, they're technically correct. I can't fall for that. But I can just say I'd like to see more emphasis on that. Right. Understood. Okay. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.